Well, I've said to you a couple times during this Advent season that uh, we, um, in Advent, stand in this kind of awkward place between celebrating the first coming of Jesus and awaiting and expecting his second coming. And also in terms of the readings and the prayers, we stand between celebration and a kind of penitential or repenting vibe that there is in Advent as well. So because the last couple of weeks we've focused a little bit on the repentance or the penitential side, I thought to myself, this week I am going to really focus on joy. And I'm just going to tell you all the things that ought to uh, make us joyous. But after Friday, I think we have to ask, could that rose-colored candle be any more out of tune? Could it be any more tone-deaf with what's happening, any more off-key or ritualistic? than it seems to be. This seems rather a perfect day for purple or blue repentance. For days like Friday, we fear actually that God is not in our midst. And it seems like the forces of evil are winning. Some of you who know me well uh, may remember that my younger brother Craig is a 30-some-year police officer, the deputy chief of police in Anaheim. His wife was a longtime police officer and then went to the DA's office to help the DA prosecute murder cases. My nephew's a cop. I've had close friends who are firemen. So I kind of have lived in this law and order world, you might say. And if I was in the mind to, which I'm not, I think I could walk you through that scene and have us all either throwing up or in tears. Were we to actually think about what actually happened in those few seconds. It's unimaginable. It's actually unspeakable. It's not proper maybe even to speak about. But when you have firemen and cops and doctors in tears, just trust me, they looked into the face of evil because cops see this stuff all day, every day. They see the worst part of humanity all day, every day. And when you see cops and firemen walking out of a scene like that reduced to tears, you can just know that something utterly evil and unspeakable happened. But that same day, a deranged guy in China slashed 22 children with a knife at the gate going into a school. That very same day, somebody doused people in a doorway with some flammable liquid and lit them on fire. That same day, there was a murder-suicide in, in Denver. Um, excuse me, at the Excalibur in Vegas. The, the lighting people on fire happened in Denver. And so we fear that actually the forces of evil are winning. And so if you got to hear any of the sound bites from some of these residents in Newtown, they said things like, we searched, we, sorry, we researched a place to go for months and we picked Newtown over any other place in the greater New York area because we thought it was safe. And so we moved up there like many people to get away from the so-called horrors of the city. And I remember this one man saying, I don't know if there's any safe place left in this world. So it's not for no reason that the first responders ushered these five, six, seven, eight-year-old kids out of that building saying, close your eyes. 
we don't want you to see what happened here. And we all wish we could. We all wish we could just close our eyes. And what we really wish is we could make this go away. So I think what we need to really deal with tonight in a very straightforward way is to just say that this pink candle of joy is not starry-eyed or idealistic or romantic. It's not mere wishful thinking. Rather, this pink candle of joy is actually a straightforward, clear-eyed statement of what's real. And that is that joy will ultimately win the day. And so we see that prefigured in our, in our readings that when in the Isaiah reading and in the Zephaniah reading, that when Israel was, you know, released from her captive, she felt that kind of joy. And then when we think about the second coming of Christ, we understand that that's what's coming. But of course, what we all live with is, is I think, I guess in no fault to our own, we have this kind of default position about joy or this misunderstanding about joy or a lack of joy, that joy is an emotional state, that joy is the result of one's circumstances. But biblically, when joy is mentioned, the context is spiritual, not physical. That joy is talked about as the fruit of the spirit. It's talked about as a part of a life with God, like the pleasure we find in a fine sunset. Or, or if you can recall that pleasure you experienced, like pleasure doesn't almost seem to be enough word the first time you knew that you were forgiven. Remember that feeling, that joy, when you really realize I'm forgiven? And for me, that was a big deal. I don't know about the rest of you all, but I was a pretty good sinner. And so that was a big deal, that, that sense, that feeling we had. And, and, and was, so that's part of what it was like to get caught up in God's very life. There's the command to rejoice in all things. And I've told you before, one of the passages in the Bible that I just don't get and may die never getting is Paul and Silas in that dank, dark prison singing hymns. I'm not sure I'll ever understand that except for this. There is some deep power of Christian spirituality that we see in that passage. But we're also told by Proverbs that joy is not something that we can just assume at all times and all places where the writer of Proverbs says that even in laughter, the heart may ache and joy may turn to grief. I mean, you know, when I recognize this um, is any time, whether, you know, I'm acting as a pastor or in the last four years, I've been at hospitals a lot because of Debbie. And so sitting in a hospital waiting room especially if you are sitting there for hours, it's fascinating. You'll see a doctor come out and people gather around and then joy. Yes, he lived. And then drooping shoulders and hanging head. And it didn't go as we expected. And if you sit there for hours like I do and watch this happen, You'll begin to see that all around these big waiting rooms at these big hospitals, a child was just born and people are rejoicing and a grandmother just died and people are sad and somebody else is in labor and people are worried and somebody else is in surgery. They don't know what's happening. And this is the way of actual human life. So the joy that we read about in our scriptures tonight is just a foretaste of the day that's coming when every tear will be wiped away. And that's what's prefigured in this reading if you want to look at it. This is a community who have a, who have a very sharp, vivid memory of embarrassment and suffering and oppression. That's what these ancient Israelites are aware of. And God says to them through the prophet, be happy, celebrate. 
God's reversed his judgments against you. He's healed the accumulated sorrows of your exile. There's nothing to fear from evil ever again. And on Friday, you just want to go, what? Like on Friday, I understand why people don't believe in God. Totally. I totally get it. I totally get why, and I can guarantee you that for hundreds of thousands of people, that was it. I'm done with God. All over America, I can guarantee you. Like, that was it. I was barely hanging in. I'm done. And I get it. Zephaniah says, God will calm you with his love. He'll delight you with his songs. He'll rejoice over you in gladness, renewing, quieting, soothing you with his love. And this is what Isaiah says Israel was experiencing when he says in the Isaiah reading, if you want to look at it, that God is my salvation. I trust him. I won't be afraid. God is my strength and my song. And then our Philippians reading, just go down the page here with me. The Philippians, like the Israelites, were living in their own kind of hardship and troubles and difficulties. Different, but nevertheless, they were facing lots of trials and difficulties. And then, of course, there was Paul's own life of extreme troubles and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and riots and hard work and sleepless nights and hunger. So this isn't like some, you know, scholar in ivory tower who just did a word study on joy. You know, and like looked at all the, all the instances in the Old Testament and, you know, uh, you know, looked at the etymology of all the words and the background and how it was used and then came out with a statement on joy. This is the Apostle Paul, literally beaten and shipwrecked and on and on and on. And it's this Paul who says, celebrate God all day, every day. I mean, revel in him, live joyfully. But, and this I think is one of the most important things I've, I've taught you in three years. So listen up. These notions of joy do not mean you feel joy when your son just got murdered. You feel joy. This is not a command to feel joy. When the Bible talks about the joy of the Lord being your strength, when Nehemiah said to the people of God, the joy of the Lord is your strength, come on, just do a little English here with me. It's the joy belonging to the Lord who is your strength. And when you have no strength, when you're utterly weak, when you can hardly believe in him, don't worry about it. The joy that is in God as sorry for a big word on a Saturday night, but ontologically, the nature of his being is joy. And that joy that is in God when you're broken and a wreck and can hardly believe in him, then it's okay. Go there. Go there if you need to. Let your heart break. Think what you need to think. Feel what you need to feel. You can't stop it from happening anyway. And then be at peace. Because the joy of the Lord, not your little joy that comes and goes with our circumstances, not that kind of happiness, but the joy belonging to God will be your strength when you have no capacity to go there. That's the message. But when we pick up the Luke reading, 
And I feel like this is really important too for all of us who try to think a lot around here about our own spiritual transformation, our own followership or discipleship to Jesus. And for many of us, we come out of a world of moralisms. And I don't mean just the moralisms like don't do dope, you know, don't drink, don't have premarital sex. I mean, that stuff was obvious. But I mean even the moralisms of you feel joy, darn it. You must feel joy. You're a Christian. Feel joy. And so for lots of us, we've wanted to jettison that. We want to jettison the feeling that goes with it. And we want to jettison sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, meaning not all of us are equally thoughtful about this stuff. But we want to jettison the theological baggage or structure that undergirded that kind of moralism. And I just want to say, I get that. But... Seeing what happens on a day like Friday makes you understand when you read John's words tonight that if you can see, and I want to suggest that you see in John's words, and I'm going to show you here in a moment, the grace and mercy and wisdom, the grace and mercy and wisdom that does underlie the ethical components of the New Testament because they're there. They are there. There are ethical components in the New Testament. John's saying, the whole world's changing. The Messiah is coming. Everything's going to be different. This is the beginning of the end. God is reconstituting his people. And once he reconstitutes his people, that people is going to join him in the new heavens and the new earth. And God's going to finally get his way. And so the crowd says, what do we do? And John says, if you have two coats, give away one. Can you hear the ethical component in that? It's there. But it's mercy and it's goodness and it's love and it's God's wisdom. So the taxmen say, what should we do? John says, no more extortion. Collect only what's right. Don't you think that's a good thing? What if you got audited this year and some tax guy was ripping you off and he made you pay the government another $5,000, but he kept two for himself? Would you feel good about that? Or would you prefer that he be ethical? Do you think it's better for human flourishing if people took on this kind of ethics? Or is this moralism negatively construed? Well, John thinks with the coming of the kingdom that it begins to change people. It changes the crowd. It changes the taxmen. The soldiers come to him and say, well, what should we do? And he says, no more shakedowns, no blackmail. Just be content with your rations. No more trying to gain from others. And then John says, and this is the real key to, I think, formational issues. Jesus will ignite the kingdom life in you. And so crowd When Jesus ignites the kingdom life in you, it will become intuitive if you have two coats to give one away. Taxmen, it will become intuitive not to steal from others. Soldiers, it'll become normative in your heart that of course you would never abuse somebody. So Jesus will ignite the kingdom life in you, a fire, the Holy Spirit in you, changing you from the inside out. And so what I think we learn from this is God expects his people to behave, not just believe or love him. As important as that is, God, I believe in you. And then we sing love songs to him, right? 
I've spent my whole Christian life, 35 years, singing love songs to Jesus. Great, beautiful. But there is also, though, a behavioral dimension. What we're all reacting to appropriately is a Christianity that was reduced to that. Can I say that again? What I think we're all reacting to, or at least those of us who are reacting to this, we're reacting to a Christianity that was reduced to mere moralism or mere behaviors. But Christianity includes this, according to John, according to the Scriptures. But not the self-improvement or the world-improvement notions of the liberals, but not also the escapism of dispensational fundamentalists, nor the escapism of sort of the modern Qumran sect who just want to have nothing to do with society. No, in the New Testament, when it talks about morals, it's talking about a way of being. It's talking about a complete repentance that leads to an integrity between our inner life that shapes our deepest values and our outward actions. And in that transformation, the scripture wants to tell us there's true joy. Distinguishing between false joy or temporary happinesses, and true joy. And of course, the writer of Ecclesiastes, remember Ecclesiastes 2, tells us all about this. Ecclesiastes 2 says, I said to myself, let's go for it. This is the message. Let's go for it. Let's experiment with pleasure. Let's have a good time. But there was nothing to it. Nothing but smoke. He goes on to say, what do I think of the fun-filled life? Insane, inane. With the help of a bottle of wine, I tried my level best to penetrate the absurdity of life. I built houses, planted vineyards, piled up silver and gold. I gathered a chorus of singers to entertain me with song and voluptuous maidens for my bed. But, he says, I hate life. As far as I can see, what happens on earth is just smoke, a spitting into the wind. So now I want you to hear the wisdom I'm begging you, hear the wisdom, not the moralism, in these words of Jesus. Do not love the world or the things of the world. I mean, you really have to decide. I've asked you over and over again over these three years, do you trust Jesus? Do you think he's competent? Do you think he knows what he's talking about? And I've said to you playfully, no one will follow Jesus who has to hesitate before saying he's smart. So we really do have to decide, is this wisdom or are we going to file this under the moralisms that we're all trying to jettison? Or does he know what he's talking about? Like with reference to that writer of Ecclesiastes. So Jesus says, don't love the world or the things of this world. But as we're saying tonight, what happens then is many people think that God is some sort of great killjoy. And I want to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. It's a big lie. Here's what's true about God. He knows deep joy. That's that nature of being thing I was talking about. He's actually full of joy and wants his people to know joy. His desire is that we live in him. Remember that scripture? In him we live and move and have our being. Well, what if God is joy in the same way that he's love? And then we're living in him. That's where this joy component comes from, not from something we work up. Here's the way it works. I hope you can get this. I'm a sunset guy. 
I don't know why. I'm just a sunset guy. I will see a sunset anytime. I'll stop. In fact, if I'm walking on the back bay and the sun starts setting, I'll walk backwards to watch the sunset. That's how much I like sunsets. Because something happens to me. I don't know what it is. You know, it just causes me to pray and worship. I just love sunsets. Now, I want you to consider that that is always present to God. The goodness of his creation, when he spoke that light to govern the day into existence and that moon to govern the night, God sees that all the time. My favorite sunsets are when the sun is setting in the west and the moon is coming up in the east and it's shining on the water and you've got orange over there and blue over here. God is always present to that. So think of those moments when you have deep abiding joy because of music you heard or a piece of poetry. God is always present to that. What if he's the happiest being, the most fulfilled and complete being in all of creation? And he is. And that's the life that we're being invited into. So my friend Dallas Willard says this, God is simply one great, inexhaustible, and eternal experience of all that is good and true and beautiful and right. That's God. And it's that God who says, look, I think I know what I'm talking about here. It's better for you if you don't love the world and the things of the world. And if you don't believe me, read a little Solomon. He gave it a shot and said it was all smoke. So here we were, 11 days from Christmas, little five-year-old kids looking for Santa Claus. And the devil shows up instead. But it's not the end of the story. And this pink candle reminds us of that. That it's not the end of the story. And I don't know how he'll do it. I don't know how God catches these things up and places them between those beautiful sunsets and the moon, you know, rising over an ocean and the beauty. I don't know how he puts that stuff in there and works it all out, but this pink candle of joy tells us that that's what's going to happen, that Jesus will one day come again, put the world to rights, and Revelation 21 tells us there'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And in the meantime, Um, this cannot explain what happened. I would never dare to explain what happened. And if I did, I would just use one word, evil. But this is not me trying to play social psychologist. This is not me trying to play psychotherapist. This is me just trying to give an encouraging reality. That had Jesus not come, had the church not been born at Pentecost, life on earth would be infinitely and indescribably worse. And I want you to picture this to the degree that you can. When that trigger was being pulled, when the knife was being raised in China, when the match was being lit in Denver, thousands, maybe millions of acts, simultaneously, millions of acts of kindness were being done all over this world by Christians. Somewhere on the West Coast, a teacher was getting up to go to school to love her kids. In Denver, a nurse was getting up to go on her shift and love the people recovering from surgery. You could just go on and on or all the way around the the time zones of the earth and you would find millions of Christians 
who were doing acts of goodness and kindness. And one random act of evil does not cancel that out. That pink candle of joy at the end of the day wins. God will put the earth to rights. And even at that school, why, while one deranged person was doing his thing, there were scores of adults doing what was right, protecting, cherishing, nurturing, making sure those kids were okay. Even there, it's a tiny minority. So as I said, this logic is not meant to fix anything, just to provide some perspective. That says something like this. Feel what you feel. And feel it as deeply as you can. Be very present to it. Don't try to deny it. Feel and think whatever it is you feel and think. But then, let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Let the joy that is going to ensure, that being of joy that's going to ensure that joy finally comes to all of humanity. Let that grant you peace. As Paul said in our Philippians readings, feel what you feel, go there as much as you need to, but then let the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And if you'll let me, I know a little longer tonight than normal, but it's not every day that something like this happens, so forgive me for five minutes longer. I went five minutes longer. Now I'm done. (laughs) But as we go into our quiet time, I want you to go with this thought. I've been singing this Christmas hymn like you since I was probably two years old. God rest you merry gentlemen. (laughs) What the heck does that mean? When I was a little kid, I thought, are there a bunch of old people around here tired? You know, because this is old Elizabethan English. And so, um, actually, I want you to kind of not look at me here for a minute. You may just close your eyes or maybe just, I want you to hear this in a, in a more kind of meditative way. The word rest here is an old English word for make settled in you. Mary is an old English word for joy. And gentleman means everyone. So hear it. God makes settled in you joy for everyone. Let nothing you dismay. For Jesus Christ, our Savior, was born upon this day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. And then tidings. That's a word we don't know what it means either. Tidings. It's a very simple word. It means news. Oh, news to you tonight of comfort and joy. News to you tonight of comfort and joy. News to you tonight, the song says, of comfort and joy. Amen.